The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, um, while the children 4 and 5 are going out, let me just say a word also that uh, because of the nature of this text, uh, as parents, uh, older children, we're going to give you the option during texts like this that if you would like to send older kids out as well, feel free to do that uh, and send them to Children's Church. Totally your call. Uh, we want to, uh, to be sensitive there and, uh, and give you that option if you'd like to, to take your children out because of the nature of what we're discussing. For those of you who are with us for the first time, you think, well, what's this all about? Uh, wh- where is this coming from? Uh, well, this, we didn't pick this text and, and join it with First Corinthians or with the Lord's Supper randomly. Uh, we wouldn't do that. First Corinthians chapter seven, but we've been preaching through. I have been preaching through the book of First Corinthians, verse by verse, walking systematically through this this book with you. And today, we've well, the past couple of weeks, we've been in a couple of passages where uh, it's it's dealing with the issue of sex. And we don't often talk about sex in church, but God talks about sex. Paul writes explicitly about the, the topic uh, because of issues that are going on in this church, and therefore, we must also deal with it. If God has seen it so important that he has put it in the Bible, then we must also not shy away from it, but speak to the issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, deals with this issue of sex within marriage and then also celibacy in singleness. And the title of the sermon this morning is Red Hot Monogamy. Red-hot monogamy. Now, there's a, a, there are a lot of opinions about sex out there. I mean, just in this room alone, there are various opinions and places where people would land about the issue of sex. Uh, some look at sex as merely perfunctory, that it's thoughtless, that it's mechanical. Uh, I've told you this before, but maybe this is your first time being here when I've told you this, but when I was a kid, and when it came time for my father to give me the talk uh, about sex, my father took me out into a cow pasture and pointed out and said, well, see there, son, that's a bull. And see that one there? And I'll just stop right there. That, to me, was, was although it was, it was helpful it left it on the table of being merely something that was perfunctory, that was thoughtless, that was mechanical, that was just part of nature. And I'll just be honest with you, I walked away from the cow pasture that day a little confused, all right? Um, maybe caused some issues early in marriage. I don't know. But anyway, some people think of it as perfunctory. Some people think of it merely as pragmatic, that it's a means to an end, that it's simply there for procreation. That that's all sex really is. And that there's never to be any pleasure in it at all. That God never intended it that way. And Paul says, the rest of Scripture says, that's not the truth. In fact, the entire book of Song of Solomon is very erotic poetry between a husband and a wife. Some people think of sex as dirty and disgusting. Something that Hollywood does and, and just sinners do that and sinners follow after Hollywood. And, and why would we ever want to do that? Some people think of sex as their ultimate pursuit in life. And they're constantly thinking about it and constantly watching things and looking at images and, and trying to, 
trying to live up to the sex symbols of our day. Some people, maybe in this room, even think of sex as something that's painful. Some of you have tragic past experiences. You've experienced a rape at some point in your life or abuse of some kind. And so this issue of sex is just something that is too hard to deal with. Some people don't know what to think because of the myriad of voices that come seemingly from every direction in our world today or possibly because there is a lack of voice coming from the church today that's clearly telling us what sex is to be, what God's intended it to be. Well, I want today to continue in this for us to understand why God created sex. What is it really there for? What's the purpose? And, and it, should, we, should we talk about it? Should we attempt to redeem it in our culture today? And I think we should. Let me, let me read this, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive right in with the application of the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1-7. through 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote... It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Let's pray together. God, we've read this text, we've opened, and we, 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 know that what, we know what's on the table today. And God, I can't do this passage justice. God, would you speak through me? Would you open our ears to hear? Would you guard my tongue from saying too little or too much? God, would you make us ready to receive this? For your own glory and for our good, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would tell you, first thing out of this text is, there's, there's four things I want to show you today quickly. Is, first thing is this, sex is good within marriage. Sex within marriage is good. Verse 1, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Paul is now turning his attention to a letter that they had previously written to him. And he quotes from them here in this letter where they, some of those in the community had taken the position that it's not good to have sex at all, not even within marriage. And he's quoting there saying, you've said that it's not good for a man to have sex with a woman at all. Now, I would imagine that that verse has been taken out of context and used in, a, in an abusive way to condone homosexual sex and other things. But that's not the intention here. Last week, as we looked at our text, we, we saw one group in Corinth that were going to one extreme, and they were going so far as to try to argue and defend their right to go to prostitutes. They felt this was their right. Today, we see another group there in Corinth that have gone to the other extreme saying, no sex, never, under any circumstance, not in marriage, not ever. And I think this is the tendency of the human heart. To go to one extreme or the other. 
We either say everything goes or we say nothing is permitted and both are sinful. Neither are what God intended for sex. Maybe they assume based on Paul's singleness and against his warning against fornication and sexual immorality, against pornea. Maybe they assumed that he would support their position. So they wrote to him saying, it's never good to have sex. A man should never have sex with a woman, not even his wife. Maybe they assumed that Paul would agree with them, that Paul would support this position. After all, Paul was single, he was celibate, he was unmarried, but Paul refutes their notion. Verse 2, he stops quoting them, and now he begins to answer their quote. In verse 2 he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The word have there, some have, have, uh, have tried to make this out to be that Paul is simply saying that a man should marry and that a woman should marry, but they've removed any notion of sex out of this. But the word have there is used in the Bible many times as well as outside of biblical literature in ancient writings, and it means every single time sexual relations. So there's no question here that Paul's talking about sex. And he says here that every man should have and go on having his own wife. That sex should be a regular thing. That a wife should have and go on having her own husband. He's affirming here the goodness of sex. And he says in verse 5, don't deprive one another. Don't hold this from them. Paul rightly said that a husband should have his own wife and that a wife should have her own husband. And he, he can support this by going back to Genesis one thirty one, where God creates the world and he looks back at everything he's created, male and female, he created them. And he looks back on it and he says, it's good. It's very good. Genesis 2.24 where he says that a man shall leave his father and mother a woman shall leave father and mother and hold fast to one another and cling to one another. This is, this is language that is painting sexual union between a husband and a wife. So Paul's got the entire Bible to stand on here. And I would remind you that for those of you in the room that are just uncomfortable as all get out. You know how I can tell you're uncomfortable? Because you can hear a pin drop in here right now, couldn't you? It's quiet in here. But this issue of sex is a real one. We have, we have allowed the notion to be cast that, that sexual desire comes from Satan and that all sexual desire is wrong when the reality is that God created sexual desire. And it's good. Satan didn't create it, but he does abuse it. And we're going to see that. Sex is good within marriage. Secondly, sex within marriage is a way to serve one another. It's a way to serve one another. This is what he's getting to in verses 3 and 4 when he says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, these verses created even more uncomfort in the room. 
Because there are wives in here right now who have had husbands who have tried to use this verse against them to get them to do things that they are not comfortable doing. These verses have been abused by men who have said, see, the Bible says you've got to. And the reality is that's not what the text says. It is, but it's not. These verses have been abused and used to abuse many a wife. Nevertheless, there is truth here that needs to be heard for the sake of many marriages. Some of you are struggling. You're hanging on by a thread. Your marriage is is just right there. And a lot of it has to do with this issue. Sexual tension between you and your spouse. Sex is an obligation. It is an obligation of each of the marriage partners. But notice, Paul's emphasis is not on, you owe me, but instead it's on, I owe you. My body is not mine, it's yours. This is the vantage that he writes from. This is the perspective. Gordon Fee says, sex is often viewed as the husband's privilege and the wife's obligation. Wouldn't you say that's pretty accurate? But Paul seems to be saying that sex is to be mutual duty and delight, not just for the husband or not just for the wife, but both and. That it's duty for both, that it's delight for both. Perhaps this can be seen more clearly from a passage in Ephesians. Let me read this to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, or through 30. First off, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, most men right here would just give this hearty Neanderthal amen, right? Wives, submit. Now, if we're honest, most of us wouldn't do that. But the wives in the room are thinking that's what he thinks. But men, listen. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now here's what I want you to see out of that passage and connecting it back to those verses in 1 Corinthians 7. When Paul says that your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your spouse. That you don't have authority over it, it, your, your wife does or your husband does. I believe he's got this doctrine in view. That when a husband and wife in a married relationship, commit to one another and have mutual servitude where they're laying down their own rights and trying to outdo one another in showing honor to the other person. It's good. We're close to the actual design of God there. Submission for the wife doesn't seem so difficult to a man who's laying down his life for her. 
who's going out of his way to not consider his own needs first or his own desires first, but saying, I will serve my wife. I will love her like Christ loved the church. Now, let me get real practical for just a second. Husbands, this means that you treat your, your wife like a crockpot. Many of you have heard this before, but you've heard that men are like microwaves and women are like crockpots. I mean, men, it doesn't take but just 30 seconds. We've got a 30-second button and we're ready, right? 30-second ding, you know, we're ready, okay? But women are like crockpots. Man, I don't know. I don't know if you do a whole lot of cooking in the kitchen, but you get up with a crock pot in the morning and you take time to prepare the ingredients that will go in that crock pot. Now, I don't know if you can see under these lights, but my face is really red right now (laughs) because of the expression that's on your face. But you get up in the morning and you prepare those ingredients. You're going to make a roast with potatoes and carrots and onions and all those things. You take all of that and you take the time to to peel those potatoes and peel those carrots and chop that stuff up. You take that meat and you season it and you put it in the crock pot and you do whatever that you do to it. I don't know. I'm not a whole lot of crock pot in the kitchen guy. But you turn that thing on low and you let that thing simmer all day. You can turn that thing on in the morning and you can come home to grab a bite to eat for lunch and you walk in and it smells so good, but it's not ready yet. You better just go to the refrigerator and get a sandwich. The thing has to cook a little longer. Now, here, here's what I mean by this, and your all's minds are running rampant, but what, what, what needs to happen is, men, you come in at the end of the day having shown no attention to your wife. And you want to treat her like a microwave. And you want to go to bed at night and you expect her to do what you want her to do for you. And the reality is, she didn't have any preparation early in the morning. She wasn't turned on early. She wasn't allowed to simmer. The reality is that men, if you want to have a strong sexual relationship with your wife it will be that you put the effort into serving her and meeting her needs like a crock pot. Now, for any of you who are going home to roast potatoes and carrots in a crock pot, I apologize. I would tell you, forget it and go to Cracker Barrel, okay? What this also means, though, is that husbands, you don't ask her to do what you know she's uncomfortable doing. That's undesirable for her. He says here in this Ephesians 5 passage, to love her as your own body. Love her as your own body. And what this means is, let me just put it real practical for you, how many of you do things that you don't like? I'm not saying things that you know actually benefit you and you do them. Even though you don't like them, you do them because you know that it benefits you, like eating broccoli or going to the gym. I'm saying things that you don't like that don't benefit you in any way. Do you do those things? No. You don't do those things. And so the picture here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where he says your body's not your own but your wife has authority over your body means that you want to love her as if you're loving your own body. And you're not going to ask her to do the things that she actually is uncomfortable or does not desire to do. Wives, what this means for you. You're not off the hook. 
You think you're off the hook because a man's like a microwave. But you're not off the hook. Wives, you serve your husbands by seeking to be attractive to him. You may think that it doesn't take much. I mean, I can, I can just let my hair go how I want to. I can do this, do that. And then all of a sudden, I, he should just be ready any time. But the reality is here that when he says that you are to love your husband in this way, to serve him, that there should be an effort on your part to be attractive to him. This doesn't mean that you try to keep up with the sex symbols of our day. You're not going to be able to, and no one should. But you ought to put forth an effort. I'm not saying look worldly. I'm saying seek to be attractive to him. You see the difference? Wives, this also means that you strive to give him what he desires. And see, here this breaks down. Here's this paradox because the husband is not going to ask the woman what she does not desire to do, but the wife is seeking to love him above herself, and she wants to give him what he desires. And so there's going to be some give and take here, but it's not the husband standing back and saying, hey, hey, I demand. You owe this to me. This is obligation. It's not the wife standing back and saying, hey, hey, hey. But instead, it's this mutual serving of one another saying, my body's not mine, it's yours. I will outdo you in showing honor. It's the wife standing back and saying, no, 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 I will outdo you in showing honor. It's not waiting on the other person. It is this way that we serve one another. It's Romans 12, verse 10, where we outdo one another in showing honor. Sex within marriage is a way to serve one another. Third, sex within marriage is a weapon against the devil. In verse 5, he says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, many in Corinth were depriving one another of sex. This probably explains why these men in the passage just last week were going to prostitutes. Because their wives were depriving them at home, so they wanted to satisfy these urges somewhere and were going to prostitutes. I said earlier, Satan didn't create sexual desire, but he does abuse it. Listen to what John Piper says. When sexual desire rises, Satan shifts his missile carriers into high gear. The rise of sexual desire does not mean victory for Satan. It means vulnerability to Satan. Listen, because you know this is true. The stronger and bigger the desire we have for something, whether it's sex or food or anything, the stronger and bigger the desire we have for something, the more vulnerable we are to deceptive rationalizations to justify satisfying it in a sinful way. Isn't that true? When that desire rises, and you know here's the parameters, here's the guardrail, but the desire rises, which is good and it's God-given, but it's given for us in a particular way, the larger that desire comes, the more willing we are to justify using a sinful means to get what we want. This is why, young people, that you don't wait until you're sitting in the car to decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do sexually. This is why, young, engaged couple, you you don't wait. You set up your mind. You talk about these things. 
You hold one another accountable. You put people in your life that will hold you accountable. Because we will, left to ourselves, be tempted in so many ways. The reality is that there is an enemy out there and he is seeking to destroy us. By regularly having sex, spouses, by regularly having sex, you protect one another from the attacks of the evil one. I, this, is, this is so clear and so obvious in the text. He says it's okay to, to come apart from one another for a while and, and to, to not have sex for, a, for an established amount of time, for an agreed upon amount of time, but then come back together as soon as you can because if you stay away for too long, then you're going to be an easy target for Satan. If a husband is being satisfied by his wife, he will be less likely to fall prey to the seductions of a temptress or what Proverbs 5 calls the forbidden woman. If a wife's needs are being met and she is being served well by her husband, she will have no need to look elsewhere. I don't want to give the impression that a spouse who has been cheated on is to blame. Please don't hear me saying that. If you've been cheated on, if, if you're a husband who's been cheated on by your wife, or you're a wife who's been cheated on by your husband, you are not to blame. They have chosen a sinful route on their own. So don't take that blame. What I am trying to do is help. What Paul is trying to do is help marriages be strengthened. That sex is a way that we fight against the enemy. That we serve one another. That we, we keep each other guarded. Do you see that? You say, well, isn't this, uh, you know, isn't this weapon against the devil language a little strong? I mean, do you really believe in that spiritual warfare stuff? You better believe I do. John Piper, in a sermon I heard him preach on this passage, shared of a woman who was on a plane, and there was a man near her who, when the in-flight meal was served, he refused his meal. Well, it was a little odd because it was a long flight, and so she asked, she intrigued, why did you refuse your meal? And the man went on to say that he was fasting and praying, which would be no big deal, except he was fasting and he was praying to Satan for the destruction of families and marriages of pastors. There's a war going on against what God has put together. This is what Satan has always wanted to do. He has always wanted to destroy what God has made. He has always wanted to pull apart what God has put together. And husband and wife in this room today, what you need to hear desperately is that, yes, you should pray together. Yes, you should come together and, and come to church together. But Paul is saying you should also have sex. That you should, you should guard one another against the attacks of the enemy in this way. The last thing I'll show you in this is that sex within marriage is a gift that not all receive. Because I know in this room today, there are some that are married, there are some that are not. Some of you are right now living a celibate, single lifestyle. And you may be that way in a temporary mode, but you also, some of you may be there permanently. You may be permanently single. Some of you are single again. Your, your spouse passed away. Some of you may be single through divorce. Some of you may have never met anyone that you've married. Marriage, sex within marriage is a gift that not all receive. 
Verses 6 and 7, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. He's talking about them not coming together, but agreeing on a certain amount of time they would not have sex and then coming back together. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul was able to remain single only because he knew that it was a grace gift to him. That it was a charisma. That that the, the desire for sexual satisfaction had been removed from him. It didn't make him less of a man. It was a gift of God. God had given him this gift. And he knew that his celibacy and his singleness was, was not something that elevated him and made him more spiritual than someone else. That it was simply a gift of God. In the same way that he talks about later in speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a gift of God and it should not be sought after over and above another gift. That gifts are given out by God and it's at His discretion. And we don't have the right to say one is better than the other and seek after what He hasn't given us, but we are to embrace what He has. The lesson here for us is that both marriage and singleness are gifts. Now, at Christmas... My 100, my 100 year old aunt uh, just turned 100 this, this past July 4th. At Christmas, she always gives us gifts. Normally, it's things that she picks up around the house. She'll put them in a bag, she'll, she'll give them to us. We never know what's going to be in there. This year, when we opened our gift from, from my aunt, uh, we pulled out an umbrella sleeve. Just a sleeve, not the umbrella. Don't know where the umbrella is. The umbrella probably is there in her house somewhere. She picked up the sleeve. She didn't need it, so she put it in the bag and gave it to us for Christmas. Merry Christmas. Now, you may think, and I thought, I didn't say it out loud, that's a lousy gift, right? That's, that's a horrible gift. Who wants an umbrella sleeve? Maybe one day I'll find an umbrella to put this in. Well, great. Merry Christmas, Right? You may be treating your gift of singleness, celibacy. That's a lousy gift, God. What are you thinking? Why would you give me this umbrella sleeve, God? Or you may be looking at someone else's gift. And See, the reality is if you have this gift, you don't look at your gift that way. But maybe you have the gift of celibacy and you're looking across the aisle and you're looking at someone who's married and and who has to deal with all of this stuff and you say, man, that would be a lousy gift. Or maybe you're married and you're looking across at someone who's celibate and single and you're saying, man, that would be a lousy gift. I don't understand how they could ever do that. I could never do that. The reality is your comfort with whichever side you fall is evidence of the gift that you have received. That both are gifts. Sex is a gift of God. Singleness is a gift of God. For the glory of God. So if you're in this room today and you are living a celibate single life and maybe you're hoping and praying, God, I don't want to be celibate and single all my life. I really want to meet someone. I want to get married one day. I want to have a family one day. Maybe he'll give you that. It's obvious that he has not given you that comfort and, and that just embracing of that singleness. 
But while you are single, embrace that gift as a true gift from God and use it to His glory. If you're in this room today and you are married, and some of you right now are wishing that you weren't, you're looking for a way out, you're miserable, realize that your marriage is a gift of God. Embrace it and use it for His glory. Sex and singleness are gifts to the glory of God. Now, I want to transition, if I can, to the Lord's Supper. And here's how I think we'll do it. The Ephesians 5 passage instructed husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. When we come to the table today, it's very obvious that Christ didn't consider his body his own, to hold on to, to to hold it for himself, but instead we come to the table today and we take bread and we take the cup. It's very obvious that Jesus said, I'll lay down my body for you. I'll give myself for you. I will shed my blood for you. He did not hold back anything from us. But instead, he's made every provision necessary that we might be right with God and close with God and intimate with God. Not in a sexual way, but in an intimacy that transcends any of that. Sex is given to husbands and wives in a way to picture the gospel. The intimacy of two becoming one. And today we come to the table and we remember that Christ didn't hold on to his body, but instead served us and served us well by going to the cross. That he fought against Satan. Don't you remember his time in the wilderness where Satan came three times, tempting him, tempting him, tempting him. And he fought against Satan, not just for himself, but for us. So when we come to the table today, we remember that we have a great bridegroom. We are the bride. And we remember what he has done. And we look forward to being rejoined with him again. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we celebrate today the fact that you are God and you are on your throne. God, we also celebrate today that you didn't stay there. But instead, Jesus, you didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to and hoarded for yourself. But instead, you laid down what was rightfully yours. You humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And today, God, I pray, Lord, that we would remember that as we celebrate communion. And God, I pray, Lord, that for what we've walked through today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that's been uncomfortable for some, that's been laughable for others, God, that we would not see the marriage relationship, we would not take the issue of sex lightly, but God, that we would see it as the gift that it is, that you made it, and you made it good. God, that we serve our spouse. And God, we war against the devil in it. And God, whatever way you've gifted us, God, I pray, Lord, that we would 
Embrace that gifting God for your glory. Satan tries to come and tell us that we shouldn't be content with our gift. That we should say to you, what right do you have to give me this? But God, I just pray that you would speak and move among us, God, and hush the voice of Satan and that you might speak clearly to us. God, be glorified as we come to the table today. And I pray that all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.